Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Gil McKean, and he'll be answering your questions on Skeena River, the Steelhead Dreams. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Gil a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Look in the right column of our website, and you'll see a form that you can use to sign up. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you, you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing as well as FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We have a couple of buttons on our homepage that you can use to, to do just that. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Gil McKean about the Skeena River. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Cantui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods, ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Gil, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Now, you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. If you haven't registered for the drawing yet, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Gil's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book of your choice from Stackpole Books. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Gil and I talk about during the show. Uh, and you must submit your answer along with your name and your location using the text box on our homepage. It's the same text box you can use to ask questions during the show. So listen closely, use your best typing skills, and I have a list of books from Stackpole that I'll send the winner, and the winner can choose from that list uh, any book they'd like. So um, tonight our guest is Gil McKean, and Gil is the owner of West Coast Fishing Adventures, uh, which is Orvis-endorsed uh, guide. He has been a committed ambassador and guide in the Skeena region for the past 28 years. Guiding has given him the opportunity to share his knowledge and passion for fly fishing, teaching guests from around the world angling techniques and helping them catch trophy salmon and steelhead. 
The Skeena is one of the last wild salmon and steelhead fisheries in North America. The largest steelhead he has guided to an angler was a massive 41.5 inches in length and a girth of 25.5 inches, an estimated weight of around 34 pounds. He has personally landed three steelhead in the 30-plus pound class and countless 20-plus pound steelhead. This only happens with time spent on the water, uh, total commitment and passion for the rivers that they call home. Gil has also traveled the world and enjoyed fishing in Christmas Island, Ishtak, Mexico, St. Thomas, and targeted species such as tarpon, GTs, bonefish, snook, permit, jacks, and yellowfin tuna. His hobbies include fishing, tying flies, playing guitar, spinning vintage vinyl records, hunting, and playing hockey. Gil is a very active ambassador advocating for the preservation of angling and wild salmon and steelhead for all. Clean water, clean air. He has guided countless fishing celebrities, including those that have become friends and mentors through the years and turning them into lifelong relationships, all because of a fish. Well, Gil, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Uh, my pleasure, Roger. It's uh, an honor to be on your show. I know you've had a many, many, many uh, celebrities on the show over the over your years, so uh, I guess it's, um, you can add me to the heap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully I don't yeah, disappoint. Actually, no, yeah. I'm sure you won't. Uh, yeah, we've had over 200 guests on Ask About Fly Fishing, and I think we're, this might be 300, show 328. Um, so, uh, yeah. A lot of material for sure, and uh, yes, sure. you're among the ranks of many other fine uh, fly fishers. That's for sure. So, uh, God, glad to have you tonight. Um, well, the uh, lots of questions uh, about the Skeena. Um, I'd like to get a little bit more background about you first. You know, you, you said you started guiding what over twenty some twenty five years ago or so. Yeah, um, how, I. Uh, how did you get started up there? It's interesting. It uh, I I actually grew up on Vancouver Island. Uh, my dad was a an avid steelheader um, and uh, a commercial fisherman on the north end of uh, Vancouver Island. And of course, it, in the early I guess or kind of late seventies is um, when I was just a young boy chasing my dad down the trails of the Englishman River, getting smacked in the face with cedar boughs, trying to catch up and hope that a sasquatch didn't come grab me. But um, yeah, that's where I kind of, I think the seed was planted. I didn't even know it. You know, I was so young. I was like more, maybe five, six years old, and and my mom would kick me out the door with my dad because I was just such high energy. She didn't want me there, and uh, my dad had to take me if he wanted to go fishing. So that was the deal. Um, so that's where the seed was planted, and, of course, you know, I have fond memories. Even still, it's amazing what sticks with you of, staring into the river and watching all the guys on the banks of the Englishmen on Vancouver Island um, casting at steelhead. And back then, Roger, you could visually see the steelhead. Uh, it's, yeah. And I, I kid you not, I just have memories of seeing these big, long fish swimming just, you know, elevated in the river just effortlessly in the current. And uh, so that's kind of where the seed was planted. And then, of course, I just really... It's never left me. You know, I, I had my father planted the roots, and uh, I've just always been connected with nature. He was a hunter and an angler and uh, and a commercial fisherman, and it just, uh, you know, it's it's just always been with me. And so I've been always, I've always been passionate about it. We, we moved at one point from Vancouver Island, a little town called Coombs, actually, 
um, and more towards the north end of the island down towards Port Alberni to give kind of people a, an idea of the, the geographic area and um, if they're familiar with the island. And then there came a day we we moved off our farm. We had a 100-acre farm there, and it was uh, we had French Creek in our backyard, and it was like, like a little uh, just a, a place of, uh, you know, it's like having your own Stanley Park, you know, or having your own parks. And, and moving away from that, moving into Nanaimo, which was a large city, was a huge shock for me as a young boy because I was lost. I was so used to being on the farm and, and having French Creek in my backyard, and it had coal and steelhead in it at the time. And it was just a little farm, small little community. And now I'm in Nanaimo. And uh, it really, I got to tell you, fishing kind of saved my life in, in a lot of ways uh, from going down a, a weird path. You know, um, I could have quite easily gotten tied up with the wrong crew. In fact, at one point I was getting kind of connected with uh, some very questionable kids and kind of got into, I mean, I'll be just brutally honest with you, I got into stealing some bikes and doing some very foolish things. And, and uh, the thing that grabbed me and uh, grounded me again was finding Millstone Creek, which is a small creek in uh, Nanaimo. And when I found that creek and I grabbed my dad's old Fenwick rod and, uh, and his flies again, and I went down to that creek, and uh, it grounded me again, and I found it saved me because I felt as, you know, I could see that, and I think back now as at my age, I could see where you could very easily go astray. My dad was always working away, commercial fishing or logging, and so he wasn't home, and I was kind of left to my own devices. My parents were both working, and without having that creek, I couldn't really tell you where I'd be today, you know, and so that's where my passion, and, and eventually we moved away from there to Clearwater, and, uh, of course, that's uh, a world-famous area as well for uh, rainbow trout and salmon. used to be, uh, it flows into the North Thompson, and then, of course, the North Thompson goes down and it meets up with the South Thompson, and then, obviously, down into the Fraser. And uh, that's legendary for the Thompson River steelhead, which, of course, nowadays are nearly a, uh, listed on the endangered species list, which is a complete heartbreaker. So that's kind of a fast track of... Um, where I came from and kind of where I've kind of been around. There's many, many stories I could tell you, Roger. Uh, one of the stories I have, uh, being caught fishing on the Millstone Creek, uh, my mom always thought I was at school, and I wasn't actually. I was in grade five, and I was, uh, back then the school never called home to see if you were there so or report whether you were at school or not. And there just so happened to be a, a phys ed class, I would have said to be maybe grade 11, running down the trail, and I was standing on a rock in Millstone Creek in my running shoes and jeans, and I'm much like, I guess you could say, Huck Finn sort of thing, and uh, skipping out of school again, and I was down there, and I had a few trout in a bread bag that I always used to keep for my mom, and I would just use the flies that I had in the box, either a Royal Coachman or Royal Wolf or a uh, Black Gnat or a Hare's Ear, and when those flies wore out, I'd actually start using uh, Wonder Bread or like a little piece of bread, and I'd put a little bread ball on there, and that's how I was successful at catching trout. But this PE class was running by, and these two young guys, they ran down the trail. I'd say they were about grade 11, and I was grade 5, so they're a little larger than I was. And the one fellow says to me, um, I guess being conservation-minded even back then, he said to me, you can't keep those trout. And I was a mouthy little farm kid, tough little bugger, and uh, I just said to him, well, is this your effing river? And then as quick as I said that, he punched me in the face. 
knocked me flying <laughs> off the rock. And uh, the biggest mistake the two of them made was they turned their backs and they ran away and they were running up the trail. As they were running up the trail, well, what's on the riverbank? There's rocks everywhere. And I was actually, I had a pretty good arm. So I was mad. My tears were rolling down my face. I couldn't see. And I, I started picking up rocks and I started throwing rocks at those two. And I ended up hitting one of the kids quite hard in the back. And he was screaming and yelling. His other buddies dragging him up the trail. Anyways, off they go. They got away. And I thank God I didn't hit him with any other rocks. I just hit him really good with one. And they didn't come back. So I get home and my mom comes home from work. And uh, I'm there with this big black eye. My nose is all swollen. And she comes in and she goes, my God. She goes, what happened to you? And I said, oh, Mama, don't worry about it. You know, it's no big deal. I was in a, a fight at school. And she's too smart for that. You know, she looked at me and she goes, there's no way in hell a grade four or a grade five can punch that hard. She goes, what happened to you? And I told her I just stuck to my story. And, and, and the funniest thing was is she got on the phone right away and called the police. So the police come over to the house, and uh, lo and behold, they, you know, she, she goes out, talks to them. They go back and forth. They're gone for a bit, comes back in, call, looks at, has that look a mother has, and looks me in the eye and says, where were you today? And I said, I was at school. And she goes, where were you? And I, I stuck to my story, and she went back out to the car, and before you know it, the police officer and her both standing at the door the officer says, uh, son, he goes, where were you today? He says, did you have, did you happen to be down at Millstone Creek to, uh, fishing today? And I says, yeah. And he goes, um, he goes, well, that answers the question. And he turned around and he went back to the car and he, and the car, the police car drove off and mom comes in the house and she says, I think you're even. And anyways, what ended up happening was the fellow that I hit in the back with the rock, I ended up cracking his rib and and uh, that was the end of the story. He he went into the hospital to get his rib checked, and I had a you know fat face and a and uh, I was found out at that point. I was uh, my school attendance went up from there, and I wasn't on the creek <laughs> quite as often. Went down, huh? Yeah, <laughs> well, less well, fishing to say the least. Yeah. Well, how yeah. did you get up? That's a fun story. How did you uh, get up to Terrace? And, well, uh, get I the... I came up here. Um, I was actually I started logging when I was 13 years old out of Clearwater, and uh, believe it or not, it sounds crazy, but uh, in uh, grade nine, grade eight, they actually believe it or not, logging was an elective course in the Clearwater Secondary School. So it's quite. It's I know it sounds crazy, but there was we actually we had a teacher by the name of Brent Buck that took us out into the wilderness in a van with chainsaws. There was a loader, and we learned how to fall trees buck and uh that's uh and and when you teach young men that um and you teach them how to make a living well that's why we're going to school so i actually started logging quite young pulling chokers by a cat in clearwater british columbia and um i logged for quite a few years and um to be honest what ended up happening is i was in a severe logging accident and uh broke my I broke both my collarbones, broke three ribs, punctured a lung, fractured my skull. I detached retina in my right eye. I spent uh, months in Richmond rehabilitation down in Vancouver. And when I got out of the rehabilitation and I started to get back going again, I was quite young and very thankful I didn't die because I was nearly dead. Um, I decided it was time to change my life. And I'd always been fishing. I mean, logging and, and driving those roads and seeing those rivers and 
And, uh, it, you know, of course, I was always out there any weekend, any day, any time I got a chance to pick up a rod, I was off on a river somewhere fishing. So um, at one point, my a friend of mine had said to me when I was, uh, you know, going through rehabilitation, he says, hey, he says, Gil, he goes, my uncle Noel, Noel Giger, he says he owns a fishing lodge up in Terrace. He goes, uh, I guided for him for a couple of years, but, um, you know, he, you never know, he might be looking for someone. And uh, he goes, I think you'd be a great fit. He goes, you know, you're so passionate about it. He goes, you love fishing so much. He goes, why don't you give him a call and see if he's willing to hire you? So I called him, and, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, he'd be willing to give me a shot. And uh, he was, you know, potentially looking for a guide, but he had two other fellas lined up at the time. And I was excited. I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for it. So I sold my car. I bought this old Ford pickup truck, and I bought a camper for 400 bucks threw an old beater camper on the back of this truck, and I basically sold everything I had. And I left my girlfriend that ended up uh, being my first wife, uh, left her there in, in Kamloops, and I told her that I was coming up to Terrace to be a fishing guide, and she laughed at me. She thought that was the most ludicrous thing she ever heard. <laughs> so I, uh, I got up here, and I started, uh, Noel hired me, and uh, I actually lived in my camper on his property for a couple of months. Um, out my camper, and of course the roof leaked on my camper, and I was uh, had to put a tarp on there. I was kind of a bit of a gypsy, to be honest with you. I I got a PO box uh, for my mailing address because this is all before uh, text messaging and uh, even before the internet. And I so I got a PO box so I could write letters and uh, back and forth to my girlfriend in Kamloops. And once in a while, I'd put a phone call into her, and I'd do my laundry at the laundromat. And uh, before you know it, Noel um, had said uh, he'd give me a chance on the oars uh, paddling the drift boat down the Calum River in the spring, and I was excited. And uh, I don't mean to kind of toot my own horn, but, I mean, if Noel was on the call, he would probably say the same thing. He, he told, told me and told a lot of people, he goes, Gil was a natural on the paddles. He said he just, he goes, I didn't even have to tell him anything. He said he jumped in the boat, and off we went down the river, and he said, the rest is history. So um, it just, you know, and I, I got to really, you know, speaking of Noel, um, you know, that fellow's a legend in his own, you know, as well. I, you know, he started the guide guiding back in, oh, God, I don't know how many years ago. Uh, he had a company called Big Fish Country. They had the Northwest Fishing Guides, him and Cosmo Zoveglia. Cosmo actually was the one that built most of the, the very first, drift boats that drifted these rivers, the Skeena, the Calum, even before they ran jet boats on the Skeena um, Cosmo, they, we actually drifted. Uh, to have a jet boat on the Skeena and have a jet boat on the Calum uh, was a luxury because when I guided, and it seems crazy, but, you know, 28 years ago, we didn't have jet. The jet boat was a luxury, really. Uh, we Noel would very often put us in a drift boat and send us down the Skeena, and we'd find a place to pull it out. Um, we'd either, and same with the Calum. It was uh, there was we weren't really using motorized boats uh, for his business at back then, and you know, over time we kind of evolved into jet boating. So that's where I got my start was with Noel uh, Northwest Fishing Guides, and I really do owe it to him. You know, it's uh, to give me my start, and uh, eventually being an independent kind of uh, entrepreneurial kind of free spirit, I, I just wanted my own thing. And the funny thing is, is that his nephew, Justin Giger, was 
a childhood friend that I had grown up with. And lo and behold, Justin quit his job, and I, we started West Coast Fishing Adventures, and the rest is history. Um, Noel was never really uh, supportive of that. I, I think it, a lot of times there was a bit of, um, I don't say, I wouldn't say resentment. I think he was proud of us, but also I think hurt at the same time that we never took over the family business. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually the business was bought by a couple fellas that still own it today. Well, one of them does, Dustin Kovacevic, uh, he calls it Nicholas Dean Lodge. And, and uh, so they bought the bought um, the license and bought uh, Noel's place, and uh, Dustin still lives there today. And just so happens he's the chairman of the Skeen Angling Guides Association. And uh, also, just um, two nights ago, I was also nominated once again to be the vice chair of the Skeen Angling Guides Association. So it's it's Dustin and I running the the, the Skeen Angling Guides Association <laughs> once again. So oh, good. Now that's quite a story. Um, and uh, glad you landed in, in the right place uh, for yourself and in your life, it sounds like. Uh, uh, but let's take a, a quick break here, um, Gil, and when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about the Skeena River itself and, and uh, what it's all about. So hang tight, and we'll be right back. Perfect. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook all within a few miles of each other. But you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charliesleflyfishing.com. Again, that's charliesleflyfishing.com, or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Gil McKean about the Skeena River. Uh, if you'd like to ask Gil a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So, Gil, um, yeah, we were talking about how you got to your business. So tell us uh, what, what your business is all about up there so that people know what you do and how to get a hold of you and so forth. So West Coast Fishing Adventures is a company, the, the word adventures on the end, of course, is, of course, we're on the West Coast, and uh, adventures is something that we've provided. Um, I'm not, uh, we're not, we've got so many rivers, we're blessed with so many rivers here, it is truly amazing, and it's just such a watershed. So in, in most cases, you don't really have to fish the same river twice in, say, a five- or six-day trip, which is pretty amazing. When you think about it, I mean, if we get the weather uh, within 45 minutes, say, by truck and trailer, so we'll trailer to a location with a boat, uh, whether it be a jet boat, drift boat, whitewater raft. We have many different crafts that we use. I even use side-by-sides, Honda Pioneer 1000s. We've got quads. We've got you name it. And it adds that all those things, they all add to the adventure. I mean, most of my clients say, you know, it was worth the price of admission just to you know, people go to Disneyland for a ride, an amusement ride. Well, 
people come here, they get an amusement ride in nature, and they have an opportunity to see mountain goats, grizzly bears, moose in the wild, and, uh, and then obviously an opportunity at catching wild Pacific steelhead, wild salmon, Pacific salmon from anywhere from northern, like the northern cove in the fall, Chinook in the summer, and then of course uh, through July, August, you know, June, July, August, by July and August we've got uh, a full mix of all the species, all five species of the Pacific salmon and steelhead are in the system by July 15th. So it's really just amazing all the different species that you have. And and what's also overlooked, to be honest with you, Roger, is, is the trout fishing. We've got phenomenal trout fishing that really is just not even, it's not looked at because we just are so spoiled with all the other fisheries that trout really are kind of a bycatch, you know. So yeah, um, so that's one thing that uh, a lot of people just don't consider is trout. So we have that as well. So um, by July, you have 15th, a lodge. You have a yeah, lodge. Yes, we do. We've got a lodge. We've got a lodge that's located about uh, ten minutes out of Terrace. Terrace is a fairly small town. I mean, it, there's you know, it sound it's twenty thousand people, but that's including all the surrounding area as well. It, it is still very. It's it's a small town. It's not a big place. Um, we've got a lodge on thirty acres of private property. It's not on the Skeena River. There's a reason for that. I've been at this for a lot of years. And uh, rivers have a way of claiming land and taking uh, taking your property away with the water. And uh, many of the lodges, uh, historical lodges, actually, that have been in the Skeena region for many years, there's a lot of them that, that have ended up washed down the river um, and or lost uh upwards of, say, 20, 30 acres of property. Uh, it's quite yeah. amazing what's happened, or have literally had to build their lodges on stilts because the river flows underneath them during the uh, spring runoff. So yeah. uh, we do, we have had some quite massive floods at different times of, uh, you know, in, in different years. So, yeah. so that's so uh, tell one them, of the reasons. Yeah, tell them what your, um, your website address is uh, so that they can learn more about what you do and where you're at and all that? Yeah, you can look us up at uh, www.westcoastfishing, all one word, westcoastfishing.ca for Canada. So it's westcoastfishing.ca. Um, I'm also on Instagram at West Coast Fly Fishing Adventures. That's another place you can find me there. I do have quite an Instagram following there, and I, I do people message me there quite often. It's a quick, easy way for people to get a hold of me and or just shoot me an email from westcoastfishing.ca to info at westcoastfishing.ca. Uh, you can send me an email anytime. I love talking about fishing. I've been at it a long time. I'm not burned out. It's a passion of mine, and I still fish on a regular basis. In fact, just three weeks ago, I was out with a young fellow that had never caught a steelhead on the skin in his life. He was only 23 and he happened to be working just uh, just outside of town here, and he got a hold of me. His, his father actually owns In Canoe Lodge, which is another famous place uh, for In Canoe and uh, Lake Trout. And there may be some people that are familiar with that that are listening to the show tonight, but uh, another legend by the name of Roy Clark from In Canoe Lodge was a very good friend of mine. But this young fellow was put in touch. He, he was told to contact me to, to go out, just take him fishing, and he was also, he's quite keen and quite interested in becoming a potential guide for our company at some time. But three weeks ago, he landed a 
41-inch steelhead on the Skeena River. So there you go. Wow. And, and uh, so the steelhead are in the system now, which is really amazing. I think. Yeah, let's uh, yeah, let's talk about the Skeena River. Let me. Sorry to interrupt you, but I got to get back no to problem. my agenda here uh, uh, and talk about the river itself. Tell folks, you know, who aren't familiar with it, um, where it is, where it starts, you know, where it, it goes, and where well, it, it starts ends. Up on the, yeah, it starts up on the Pat, uh, Spatsizi Plateau. So it starts up there, the Wilderness Provincial Park up there. And anyways, it flows. It, it's about 600 kilometers long. It's a massive system, and it's the second largest free-flowing river in British Columbia, second to the Fraser, and the next largest is the NAS system, which is also amazing. But going back to the Skeener, yeah, so it's 600 kilometers long. Um, it discharges about 1,760 cubic meters a second. So if you can think about that, it's a significant amount of water. So 600 kilometers, for uh, you people from the United States, it's 350 miles. Well, that's 570 kilometers, but uh, yeah, so let's just say it's 350 miles long. It's a, it's a significant river very large. The tributaries that flow into it, that, that's the other thing that is just so so amazing, is that just the amount of water that flows and gathers, you know, all the way down as you're coming out of Spazzisi Plateau, all the way through down, and by the time it reaches uh, the, uh, down by Prince Rupert, Chatham Sound, it's amazing the amount of tributaries that are coming in. And every one of those tributaries holds steelhead, salmon, and trout. Yeah. So, and, and the habitat is still relatively untouched. Um, it's undammed. It's a natural free-flowing river, which just makes it totally spectacular. Wow, wow, undammed. That's uh, that's unusual nowadays, <laughs> it seems. It is. It, it uh, really is. Yeah. And, and, I, and hopefully it remains that way, Roger. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you had, you've already mentioned a bunch of species, but... Um, so you're, uh, the salmon run up there, and what, what kinds of salmon run up the Skeena? So, so we've got pink salmon, of course, the smallest. Uh, we've got sockeye. We've got chum salmon. We've got Chinook salmon. We've got coho salmon. And then we've got, so we've got all, all five species, and then we've also got um, steelhead. So yeah. I, I and find that. Uh, yeah, and then yeah, trout. Yeah, we've got Dolly Varden. Uh, there's bull trout. Uh, Dolly Varden and bull trout, I mean, they're basically uh, very similar species. Um, we have sea-run dollies. It's, it's interesting. So they migrate to the ocean, and uh, they'll, they'll head out into the estuary. And uh, so they, they, they migrate back and forth also with the sea-run cutthroat trout. So we have sea-run cutthroat as well. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> what don't you We also have <laughs> rainbow trout that, are, that has always been one of those things so the, the Babine, which is a world-famous tributary to the Skeena as well, and then Babine Lake and Nilkitqua Lake, there's a section there that's called Rainbow Alley, which is just an amazing fishery as well. And there's always been a kind of a little bit of a mystery around, uh, again, think of this, an undammed river that has these giant lakes with all these rainbows. Are they steelhead or... Uh, why do they not, do they migrate eventually to the ocean or do they stay in the, in the lake or what makes them stay in the lake? It's almost like a pr protective mechanism. So these are just some, you know, things to kind of bend the mind a little bit. I think yeah. some of the studies are being uh, done 
And some of it has been proven that some of these trout uh, that we think are rainbows actually are juvenile steelhead and uh, do end up migrating to the ocean at some point. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the babine. Um, yeah, we did a show people can look up on our podcast archive uh, with Pierce Clegg uh, up on the uh, babine. Uh, so that was a, a fun show to learn more about. Pierce that. Clegg is a dear friend of mine, by the way. He oh, actually uh, got he actually guided for myself. I wouldn't say he guided for me. He's a he's like a brother to me. He he came in. I actually guided him when he retired and sold Babby Norlakes to Billy and Carrie. Um, he came uh, down and uh, was had a real hankering to still do some steelhead fishing, and I introduced him to the spring steelhead run uh, all around the area, which is another fishery that really was unheard of virtually. And I wouldn't say I wouldn't go or be as arrogant to say as that I pioneered it, but we certainly opened up Pandora's box. I can tell you that um, it was a very unheard of fishery about maybe 10, 12 years ago, very few people really knew much about it. So well, let's it's, talk it's about quite... that. Um, Dan Kingberg in, from Illinois wrote in, and he says he, he wants to know about the seasons. You know, are, he says, the summer months, June, July, August, they provide best steelhead fishing. Uh, it seems like the cold months provide the best fishing. So why don't you, why don't you give us a, a tour of uh, the, the seasons for steelhead since we're trying to focus on that. It sounds like you could probably catch salmon at about any time during any steelhead season, given all the, the varieties you have. But tell us about the, the steelhead, the, the different seasons you have when, when we might want to be up there. So um, I'll give you a couple of my personal favorites. I mean, the beginning of the run for summer run, what I call true summer run fisheries, the true summer run run would be anywhere around. I, I kind of mark it on my calendar July 15th, okay? If, if the run is healthy and it's strong that year, by July 15th, you can go out on the main stem skeena and, and swing flies, there's a real misconception, that, you know, that some of the viewers or some of the listeners, sorry, may, you know, may not have heard, and I hate to bring this into the conversation, but there's a term called flossing, and it's used to catch sockeye, and unfortunately, there's a lot of it that goes on on the skeena, and it's not, it's not really actually triggering a predatory take for steelhead. It's just lining fish. So I'll leave it at that. I'm going to stop that one, and I'm going to tell you that it's not something that we practice unless we are harvesting sockeye for the freezer to eat. That is it. That's the only reason or only time I would use that method. Other than that, you can go out on the main stem skinas by, by July 15th and use a, a quite a light sink tip. In most cases, I would only use a chunk. But the heaviest sink tip I would use would be, say, T11, and um, and you swing that using a skagit head, and uh, you don't have to, to cast far. I mean, it's uh, the, these steelhead migrate quite close to shore, so your casting distance isn't uh, the most important thing. So back to the timing, July fifteenth. Those are all the fish that are coming through. You can wrap your head around this. Imagine, let's say, upwards around eighty thousand steelhead swim the skeena in a season. Okay. So. They go right past us. We're, where our lodge is located is in the lower reaches of the Skeena. So here's something to get your head around is that we're 100, imagine this, but where our lodge is located, 
and I'm saying it's in the lower reaches of the Skeena. So we're located 120 kilometers inland, which you think, wow, that's a long way. But let's just say that 60 kilometers of that 120 is tidal. So see where that puts you. That puts you where you're catching fish that are just coming out of the tidal water, and now, so those fish are bright, silver, strong, they're aggressive, they haven't seen anything. So when you swing flies by them, those are honestly what I call true summer runs. But by the time they reach the babine, they've been in the system nearly two, say, three months. So, you know, it totally changes that fish and it's and the behavior of the fish. The fish still uh, act trouty, whatnot. They'll, they'll hit dry flies. But the one thing I have noticed is the fight in the fish is just a little bit different. And because I've fished so many years, so many tributaries and so many different uh, places, the Skeena honestly has to be my most favorite place to catch a summer run steelhead. And the reason why, I guess the analogy that I give, people kind of laugh. I give presentations at uh, fly fishing shows, and I always say that on the Skeena, this fish is still migrating, and it's heading home. Imagine you're driving home on the I-5, and you're kind of angry because the traffic's bad, and you just want to get home, and you're just waiting to turn off onto the side street to get to your house to pull in your driveway. Well, when a steelhead hits a fly on the Skeena, they haven't reached their destination. They're angry. They're pissed off and they don't give a crap where they go. Uh, they'll go all the way across the river jumping, they'll go up river, down river, wherever it takes to get away from you, and they, they haven't reached their destination. When you catch a fish in a tributary that's been there for a while, they're usually with a mate or their buddies, and they've got a bunch of friends down there, and they kind of, they'll whack a fly, but then they'll kind of just tug around and maybe go down to the tail out, come back up to the, you know, and then they're just kind of like, let me go, I just want to go hang out with my friends, because Really, they're kind of sitting on the couch with their arm around the girlfriend, you know, watching the football right. game, and you just happen to come and annoy them because they're actually at home now, you know. Yeah. Whereas on the Skeena, so, they're still driving. Yeah, so, so when does the summer run end then? starts around the, the summer, summer run. Now, so the migration and the period of time that we have uh, catchable numbers on the main stem can go all the way from basically July 15th, and I've caught them uh, quite um, – you know, and again, it's it's all about the size of the run. Um, I've been quite successful right till about October 15th in in our region. Okay, so anywhere yeah. from say Terrace to say Kitwanga area. Okay? okay, once July 15th rolls around, the bulk of those upper river fish, the Bulkley, the Kispiox, the Maurice, the Sustut, um, all those tributaries that are up there, a lot of those fish have pushed through by middle of October. I mean, they're they're all gone, and so. What you end up getting, so then we still have fish coming in, so then you still have the calum, you still have the copper fish, you still have, there's other tributaries that, that, that uh, are a little bit, the run timing is later, they're a bit later. So, mm -hmm. which is, again, why I was able to go out and catch a winter fish out on the main stem Skeena three weeks ago. So, it's the timing of the runs are uh, kind of what dictates the timing of the run is where their tributaries are located on the Skeena system. So what, uh, okay, yeah, I, I understand that in such a large system. Uh, it takes them a while to work their way up into these tributaries and so forth. So you say a summer run. So 
So there is there a winter run? Or is there there is a winter run, and it and that's the run that comes into the Kalem. There's the Lake Else River. There's uh, the Gitnadoix gets a few. There's some other tributaries. They're lower down in the bottom. They're they're actually just downriver below our lodge. Um, that those tributaries get winter runs. So, and they're just they're becoming more and more prolific every day. Depending on how strong the run is, typically by say late November, December, January, February, by those months there are literally prime time. By by February, I would say the bulk of the run is is you know bulk of the winter run should be in the Kalem. And then by March, I would say the, the majority of those fish are spawning. So, okay. it, and that's always been a kind of a bone of contention for uh, guides and for the resident anglers because, unfortunately, there's always been there's a rule on the Kalem that there's uh, resident-only angling um, November 15th to, uh, I believe it's April 15th now. They've changed the date, but which is really unfortunate because it takes that winter uh, guiding opportunity away from the guides that have licenses to guide on the Kalem. So mm-hmm. that's it. That's yeah. just, you know, just to kind of touch on that. Uh, yeah. I don't like to get into the regs and the, the politics of it all, but that is the reality. And, and unfortunately, so most, and, uh, so most fly fishers come up uh, for the summer runs, I take it. Well, uh, the weather is nice, um, yeah. you know, and of course those summer runs, as they migrate, We've got uh, the NAS system as well that also has a bunch of tributaries uh, that we guide on as well, the Cranberry, the Katine, the Bell Irving, the Mesiaden. I mean, there's just so many, and those all come online, uh, and they'll start getting uh, quite prolific with steelhead right around um, end of September. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, are you and, still... End of August, really, first weeks of September, they'll really start to pick up. By end of September, they're really starting to load up with steelhead. So um, you, jeez, uh, I mean, it sounds, it's, I can't even keep track of all the rivers and tributaries you've talked about. But um, you said uh, it sounds like you uh, haul boats uh, to some of these other areas. What Are you using all jet boats or are you using drift boats? What are you using? No, we've got jet boats. Uh, so we've got, I mean, anything from like a 24-foot or 25-foot Duckworth, uh, you know, $120,000 boat, we'll use that to cross some of the, if we do some of the coastal stuff. We also do, again, being my license in all the years I've been at it, there's really no end to where we go. I do uh, some coastal stuff. We also guide up on a river called the Kitlope. I have a park use permit there that is just, an, it's uh, uh, 280,000 uh, square kilometers of eco-preserve. It's never been logged. It's untouched. So that's one, that's another uh, program we do. We, so that's a jet boat, and we take a Zodiac along with us on that one, and we'll do a six-day trip out there, and we'll do some of the coastal stuff. Or, we, um, or we'll do, like, the raft. We'll we either raft or drift boat on the Kitimat. We use, I actually enjoy using a drift boat or a raft on, even on the Skeena. It's just a really nice way to go down the river and navigate it. Um, then we use um, Zodiacs on a lot of the lower tributaries. We'll use... Um, a smaller, uh, we call I call them the magic carpet. It's like a magic carpet ride. They're uh, they run in really shallow water, and uh, you know it's it's very comfortable, and um, it's uh, it's not stressful. You're not um, you know you're not it's low horsepower. You don't have big horsepower. It's not noisy, and I've uh, I've got them so I can actually paddle them too. So we just motor up, and then we put the paddles, and I have rowing frames on them from NRS. Uh, 
and I've custom uh, fit these uh, Zodiacs with a rowing frame. So I actually, once we've navigated up the river, I'd put the paddles in most times, and we just paddle down nice and quiet. And, and it also allows you to take nature mm -hmm. in and really kind of take it all sure. in without the noise of the motor. Yeah. Um, Treg Owings uh, wrote in here on the Internet. He's, up, he's in uh, Moscow, Idaho. He says, can a guy bring a drift boat up there and fish on your own? Is that possible? It's, you bet it is. It's totally possible. Um, there's a, a number of rivers that you can drift on. I mean, even the Skeena. The main stem, main stem Skeena is pretty safe if you're if – you're, uh, now, that said, I mean, I never want to say something that, you know, unfortunately we've had a lot of fatalities over the years. Every year there's probably two or three people uh, die from navigating these rivers without doing their homework or understanding where they're going. So – um, but yeah. yes, there are. You are able to drag a drift boat up here, and you can uh, definitely. There is access for drift boats, and then you yeah. can do it yourself. Yeah. Um, Chad uh, Patron in Colorado. He says, "Have you noticed a decline in fish returns and increase in fishing pressure over the years? Has your catch rate gone down? What do you think?" is the cause of the decline in fish. Do you think the increased fishing pressure makes the fish more educated or harder to catch? Or do you think the lack of fish returns is the cause of that? So lots of questions. It's, I guess what he's getting at is, uh, are there less fish now? Or are they harder to catch, and why? Um, I, I wouldn't go, OK, so for, for example, this year, I'll just use this year. For, I'll, I'll go back, actually. So 2018 was a year where we, I mean, you could have literally been a three-year-old with a Mickey Mouse push-button uh, rod and a chunk of yarn, and you could have caught a steelhead because there was just so many steelhead around in all the river systems, including the Nath, the Skeena. Um, the, the, the rivers, honestly, were literally crawling with steelhead in, in 2018. And, and, you know, there's cycles. Um, however, that said, when I talk about cycles, there's cycles, but there also is um, bycatch and there's an over and there are situations where uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans allows for certain openings in certain locations at this at that with with kind of lack of better words piss poor timing and of course there's a bycatch and so when we get a bycatch just kind of specifically talking about steelhead it's really unfortunate when they get caught in the net uh, as a bycatch with say a sockeye fishery or maybe a coho fishery that's going on because nets are not selective. Um, so that kind of answers that. Uh, yes, um, there are uh, situations where there's certain years. Um, this year, for example, I'll use this year as a year of uh, very, very, very inclement weather, a lot of high water, a lot of muddy rivers. Um, and I would also say that there was a significant amount of uh, commercial fishing pressure due to the fact that we had a fairly decent run. We had uh, a run of 1.2 million sockeye that returned to the Babine this year. And typically when we get a forecast like that, there's more commercial netting. And when we have more commercial netting, there's more interception of steelhead. Therefore, we see a complete fall off, a total drop off of steelhead. Are they commercially fishing steelhead in Canada? Uh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, it's kind of sad in a way because they do end up in the commercial quota, and they were being sold uh, as wild steelhead in the markets in Vancouver, and I believe they're probably getting shipped over to China and whatnot. So 
Um, yes, of course they're going to be sold. They're not going to be thrown in the garbage can. And so to answer the question, uh, yes, I would say that's a commercial catch, yeah. Uh, but they're they're going after sockeye or something, and they're taking this bycatch and just selling it, and that's legal. Is, is yes, that that's no saying? different than yeah. the Alaskan pollock fishery, and they're catching more chinook than pollock. <laughs> oh, well, okay, we don't want to get into that, do we? <laughs> 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 yeah, um, every, oh, gosh, it just drives me crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, so let's... Um, uh, I, I wouldn't mind, actually. I'll answer a couple of other the other questions he asked just quickly. Sure. Um, as far as uh, fish getting smarter and harder to catch, um, I'll be honest. So something I always say in the, uh, the uh, seminars that I do at the fly fishing show um, is that I, here's what I tell people. Steelhead are incredibly, I say there's a couple different things you say. They're either aggressive, okay, because I've never been able to talk to a steelhead. Unfortunately, I can't speak to them, but... I do know that they're extremely aggressive or they're very, very curious, okay? So what I tell everybody and all my clients, and I'll, I'll answer his question, which is that if steelhead are present and they're in the river and they have not been caught, they are catchable. In most case, and they have not been harassed because they're very aggressive, hence the reason Guides, we all have everything. We have a lot in common as guides, and we all love each other as long as we're first, if you understand what I'm saying. So sure. the competitiveness of a steelheader uh, and being first on the water or first on the pool to a pool that hasn't been fished is because we want to get, we've understood that a fresh fish, a fish that has not been harassed in the pool is going to bite. It, it, because they are very aggressive. So if that answers your question, I don't believe they, get, they become smarter. Uh, they get smarter for every time they're hooked, they get smarter. And, uh, yes, uh, a steelhead that's been caught, although that said, see, I'm going to contradict myself because a steelhead that's been caught, I've actually caught a steelhead, lost it, uh, broke it off. You know, a client of mine breaks it off, and five, five, ten casts later, he actually catches it again. And I know it's the fish because it's got my fly in its mouth. So... <laughs> As yeah. far as them being educated, it's quite interesting. Uh, you can always kind of find things in fishing that you can contradict. Uh, yeah. What, you know, well, it's, it's, a, it's a lot different. different than a big old brown trout that hunkers down in his favorite pool and watches everything yeah. in the world go by over years' worth of time. I mean, these fish don't have that experience level. I mean, they're. Well, I mean, they, they could go all the way up. That raises another very good topic, actually, Roger. When you talk about the brown trout fisheries, I've got some very good uh, guides and guide friends out of Colorado um, that uh, guide down there. And, uh, anyways, these brown trout and trout fishing and catch and release, it raises this question about catch and release. And I see uh, there's another question, something about uh, whether they, if they're caught and released, will they die? Um, th that. What you just brought up is very uh, interesting because I think what has been proven over and over again through New Zealand, Colorado, Alaska trout fisheries is that, again, these are old, wise trout. And uh, don't kid yourself, I would uh, be thinking that a lot of those trout in those systems have probably been caught over 100, maybe even uh, 500 times, and some of them actually have names. So it's quite interesting. So it goes to show that catch and release, if it's done properly, that these fish can survive. So. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but the the steelhead running up the river, they could run from the ocean all the way up to the babine and never get caught and end up getting Correct. caught up in the babine and not even see, yep. seen a fly yet. Yeah, so you Correct. never know really, um, you know, what they've seen, what they haven't, whether they've been caught or not. But, but they've been caught a lot less than those trout in Colorado. <laughs> I guarantee you that. Yeah, they probably have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us about uh, the equipment you're using uh, there. Um, do most of your clients use spay or switch rods, or do they use single-handed rods? Um, you know, norm? obviously different tools for different, you know, I've still got some um, old-school clients that are pretty stuck on single-hand rods, you know, and, um, you know, fly lines have come a long ways over the years. You know, you've got these short, fat, uh, weight-forward lines, you know, um, that cast uh, and roll over some of the bigger flies, and guys are able to still. You, you can spay cast with a with a single hand rod. I mean, the lines are developing now. I mean, really, a spay cast, all it is is a is a roll cast. I mean, and, right. and so you know that's it. Period. And really, distance. Um, it depends. I mean, we get guys that fish from the boat. If we get uh, some elderly gentlemen that, you know, uh, maybe have had a hip replacement, knee done, whatever. Uh, they're not uh, wanting to wade over the big boulders and in that habitat where steelhead are kind of uh, known to be uh, hiding. So, you know, we'll drift them down a river in a drift boat, and they can stand in a boat and cast out of the boat, and therefore they're not usually, we're not going to use a 14-foot or a 12-foot or a 13-foot spay rod out of a drift boat when they don't need to make that long cast. They can just fish from the boat. So, um, so single-hand rods are definitely not gone the way of the dodo bird. They're still around, and we still I, there's still many people that use them. But spay rods have definitely uh, the spay revolution has definitely taken over in a big way in the skeena. Um, and uh, for even actually for uh, guys that have got carpal tunnel or bad shoulders, I find that uh, spay rods have allowed them to kind of stay in the game because of the the motion and the uh, the method of the cast, the way the cast is delivered and how they are able to move their bodies um, and still get a good cast without actually putting much strain on their shoulders or their elbow, you know. Yeah. Um, so so it has helped, and, and that's probably one of the bigger reasons I see. Um, as far as the long cast, you know, I was starting to talk about that um, in relation to the Skeena, and, and people get very intimidated by the size of that river. And what's actually interesting is I... Uh, I had an opportunity to um, teach Tom Rosenbauer, of all the people from Orvis, uh, quite an accomplished angler for trout, and uh, I introduced him to spay casting on the Skeena for Skeena River Summer Run Steelhead. And Yeah, I watched uh, that. You have a video of that on your website, right? I watched that. Yes, we, yes, we do, and you can Google yeah. it, Tom Rosenbauer, Gil McKean. Um, it's a little bit older video now. I think it's been around for probably seven, eight years. I've, I thought it was quite well done for the for the time. Um, we're due for a we're due for a reunion, him and I. But you know, Tom was you know at some points during the the time that we spent on the river, he got was kind of for being so uh, such an affluent, like kind of a an accomplished angler. He really did struggle with the spay cast for a little while and the understanding of the line and everything. And so it was actually quite interesting. But when he finally got onto it, you could see the light come on, you know, and the reason for why he, why it was um, a method that uh, is definitely effective on the Skeena and uh, some of the bigger water that we have. And also for the size of the uh, fish, 
you know, when we talk about catch and release and proper handling of fish, um, it's not as though you can't use an appropriate single-hand rod, like, say, an 8- or 9-weight or even a 10-weight rod, and land a fish. We do it on the ocean for bonefish, for giant trevally, yeah, and many right. other fish. It's All we use is a single-hand. So, you know, you can still bring in a very large fish with um, with a single-hand rod. But what the spay, uh, spay rod and the spay line and the development of the Skagit head and the Scandi Mostly the Skagit has, uh, has kind of allowed for us to, uh, for our delivery system and to be able to, live, to uh, deliver these larger flies, these intruder flies. And, um, you know, it's kind of like chucking a half chicken out there some days, right? Um, and uh, with a single hand trying to false cast these big flies, which is kind of interesting as well because in Christmas Island, when you're throwing a fly for a giant trevally, those are some pretty massive flies we're throwing for those. And, and it, it does, honestly, it's quite painful throwing those flies for giant trevally. It's, uh, and uh, the type of line that you're, it's almost like tossing rope. Um, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, where is uh, yeah, Tell us ahead. about your uh, spay rod setup. What, what weight rod, what size rod do you use? Tell us about the line and uh, how yeah. you rig up for that. I'm a Sage guy. I'm endorsed by Sage. Um, I've had so many different rods. In fact, it's actually interesting. Not to, I get all over the place. I've just got so many uh, friends, but I did want to mention them. You brought them up in the beginning of the show from Douglas Rods, Fred Kintawi, uh, a yeah. personal friend of mine. He's like a brother. Very, very, very skilled angler and an incredible rod develop. Uh, his, uh, his eye and his talent for building and designing rods is probably... There's not many like them. So I just wanted to touch on that, but I am uh, partial to Sage. Um, there's so many great rods out there. Sage has just been a, a good company. They've been around a long time. They've got a good variety of rods. They've got a great warranty, and uh, they're durable. They, they, you know, they're, they're quality rod, uh, and they're a durable rod. So I, I have a tendency to use, like, a 12-foot 12 12 spay rod nowadays, 13-foot six. I would say is probably the longest I would use. Nothing longer than that. It's totally unnecessary. Um, and uh, the one of the things is, is it's not the longest cast. It's going to catch you a fish on the skeena. It's uh, it's just a, a nice delivery. Get it out there so that it's not tangled up. And um, just understand one thing about the skeena. As I said, there's eighty thousand steelhead that can be swimming through that uh, river, not in one day, but if you distribute. 80,000 steelhead through the Skeena during a two-month period. That's a lot of fish coming by in the lower Skeena. Yeah. So what kind um, of line are you using? And um, Mostly Airflow, the Rio. Um, I, mean, I don't mean you know, a brand name. I, I, I mean what type of line? Like The Skagit. The Skagit lines and the Scandi lines uh, typically are the lines okay. that we kind of uh, – Spool the, the reels up with. They're, they're kind of the standard nowadays. They're easy for clients to feel the rod load. They, they'll turn over. We do throw sink tips. There are times where we will throw dry lines. Uh, mm -hmm. I use uh, the longest head I would use would be, say, a 45-foot head. Um, uh, it's made by NextCast. It's called the Winter Authority. And the, the reason, if you if they wonder why someone would go, why would you use a 45-foot head, say, versus uh, like a 27-foot head? And and when I say head, so people can understand the spay line, because sometimes, yeah, for beginners that don't understand what a spay line, and when I say the head, 
what is that is is that the casting section it's the it's the delivery line before you put your sink tip your tippet your your leader and your fly on okay so so when we're talking about a 45 foot head or a 27 foot uh, section of line that's that the, the weight is actually distributed through that line the thickness and the diameter of that line is how the weight is distributed and what allows that uh, line to turn over larger flies and sink tips. So going back to the 45-foot head, one of the reasons I like a longer, a little bit longer head versus, say, a 27-foot is because the stripping. If you throw 45 feet out uh, to get back to the head because you, you have the running line, with a 27-foot head, you throw a way more running line Therefore, you have to strip more running line back in to get back to the back to the starting mm -hmm. point. So, when you're when you're casting a longer head, there's less stripping in most cases, depending on how much line you're throwing. But so, what's the um, difference between a Skagit head and a Scandi head? Um, it's uh, it's all taper. It's just the it's the taper and the line. A Skagit head really doesn't taper. It's it's pretty much as thick at one end as it is at the other end. Where and it, so it's uh. It's kind of what I call the bulldozer of fly lines. It's, uh, yeah, it's just a bulldozer. It just plows those big flies out there, and you can put uh, sink tips on there, and it just turns those flies and those sink tips over without um, without having uh, collapsing on itself. Whereas a Scandi, it has a, it starts to taper out in the front, uh, which is the delivery end, where you tie your leader and your sink tip on. And I wouldn't put, you know, Basically, I would run poly leaders or maybe, uh, you know, like T8. Uh, that's one of the, you know, the terminology for sink tips would be the, the sink and the density of a, of a sink tip would be, say, T8. Or, you know, people are often uh, inches per second they'll talk about. Or, uh, of course, there's the, um, the other lines, that, like I was saying, like a poly leader that's 7 inches per second or 8 inches per second. And so poly leaders, I have a tendency to use poly leaders more on the Scandi, and the reason why is because they're thinner and they turn over much nicer, and it's a little bit more delicate, plus, uh, just a bit more delicate presentation than the big Skagit line, and it's a little nicer to cast. You can throw smaller flies, hobo spay, uh, more of the traditional stuff if you want, and so it's just a little bit more delicate than the, uh, the Skagit. That's really the difference. Okay. So then from the head, you go into a sinking tip, uh, depending yeah. on what tip you want to go to. And, yep, uh, exactly. And There's mo tips. Like, you know, the mo tip is a tip that, uh, that's been developed. It's got a, a floating section on it, and it goes, some of them are like two and a half feet of float, and then, say, seven and a half feet of sinking, and then you tie your leader on there, and then your fly. And so... So yeah, you know that would be your next tip, the tip that uh, maybe you would use. It just depends on the water speed. Is all always dictates water speed, water depth really dictates what you're going to be using as far as a sink tip. Okay, and then from the sink tip, you go to your leader, and what what do you use from that point on? How do you rig up? So leader, I'm really partial. To, uh, actually, it's kind of funny when we talked about Pierce Clegg, but I but Pierce isn't really the one that got me started on this and really drilled it in my head. When I was quite a young angler, uh, going back to, uh, you know, some of the uh, mentors in my fishing career, one of, uh, he's uh, unfortunately he's passed on, he had cancer and left us early, but uh, 
His name was Raleigh Working. He was a, an absolute legend and an integral part of uh, a lodge called Tropic Star Lodge. He worked closely with Guy Harvey. Uh, he was um, very uh, active with the Safari Club International. Uh, just an amazing man, and I, I really miss him. But he was the one that got me going on the Bimini Twist. So um, I, uh, I'm just super anal with the leader. I do a Bimini Twist, and I use either 15-pound um, Seaguar fluorocarbon or I use 15-pound uh, uh, Maxima Ultra Green. And those are the only two uh, leaders typically that I will use. And those are steelhead leaders that when I say 15, 12 or 15, 12 getting a little on the light side at times, but 15 definitely is my go-to for steelhead. And then uh, if I'm fishing Chinook, I bump that up to 20 to 25, and again, I'll tie a bimini twist in it. But that's just, uh, you mean from the head, uh, you use a bimini twist from the, the leader to the head? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that the is the leader. the leader. The leader, I put a bimini twist in the leader, and it acts, if, if people are wondering why you would use a bimini twist, the, the reason why is it acts as a shock absorber. It's like a shock absorber. It's just like a spring. So it takes some of the shock out of it, and it, it actually almost, I don't know exactly, I can't remember what exactly, uh, how many times it, it's almost like doubles the line strength without actually changing the diameter where you tie your fly on. So Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. so the leader is just straight mono or fluoro. I mean, yep. there's no taper to it or anything. It's just absolutely not. No, and with steelhead uh, and using sink tips, I wouldn't use anything really longer. And when you're attaching your sink tip to your sink or your leader to your sink tip that you're tying your fly on, um, I wouldn't use anything more than say four feet. That's it. I don't. Mm -hmm. Steelhead are not leader shy. When you look at some of the contraptions and flies and creations that we come up with and throw at them, they're definitely not leader shy. So, uh, yeah. And it's also important that if you want to get the fly down quickly into, their, uh, into the windshield there, um, you don't want a big, long leader because uh, the fly line, uh, your sink tip will sink and the fly will actually stay elevated. So yeah. there's really yeah. no sense in putting a sink tip on with a long, papered leader. Yeah. Let me uh, let me take a quick break here, Gil, and when we come back, I want to I want you to tell people how to get hooked up on the steelhead. You know what what tactics you use on the river, and uh, so we'll we'll come back to that in just a second. Perfect. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one of a kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies tied for you or would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com. Again, that's epflies.com. Do a little shopping today. So you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Gil McKean about the Skeena River. So, Gil, we're running, we're running short on time, but um, I want you to... Um, uh, just briefly talk about some of the fly styles you like, and then uh, talk about um, you know how you find those steelhead in the river, where you look, and how you get down to them. 
Okay, so the summer run steelhead on the main stem skeena, I have a tendency to lean towards um, what I call uh, like a lamprey pattern, which again, it's interesting that you know when you look at, when you think of the intruder style fly, they kind of all look the same. They're really, you know, they've even either been tied with marabou, bunny, rhea, uh, guinea. I mean, there's many different materials that uh, I tie personally. I have a vice. I use a norvice, and I'm um, I absolutely love it. And I tie on tubes. I did see one of the questions. There was a fellow that had mentioned that I tie on tubes and I tie on shanks. Um, if I was to tell you. Uh, what I prefer to tie on, I would I would say I, I prefer tying on tubes. It's quicker, um, and I also find the tube, it's, it's nice to reuse the tube. Um, yes, you can tie up on a shank and use a uh, trailer and uh, change out the hooks. Um, I just, I just something that I've started to really kind of be, prefer my preference is to tie on a tube. So, but the flies the, and the actual patterns, as I was saying earlier, that it's not. I find that steelhead are so aggressive or so curious that in most cases, if you find fresh, untouched steelhead, you know they can be a little tricky at times at certain things, especially in the summertime. I find that if you can mimic uh, lamprey or uh, you know maybe sculpin patterns, stuff like that, they do seem to kind of that does seem to trigger them a little bit, especially in um, the kind of that muddy kind of uh, when the water starts to get colored up and typically I tie more black in the summertime black and kind of um, yeah I kind of leave the words black a lot in the summertime and then in the spring I really turn towards using pink uh, a lot of uh, shrimpy prawny colors but mm -hmm. I mean that said I've caught many steelhead on the summer uh, summer run steelhead on the skeena on pink as well so again back to contradicting myself um, you know, I think that the fly that you tie on, if you got confidence in it and you throw it long enough and, and you happen to get it in front of an aggressive fish that hasn't been caught, uh, really, you know, that's the, uh, I think that's really where we get spoiled in the skeena drainage because I think there's so many fisheries that get so much pressure that in some cases people think that there's no fish and, and really in, and really what the problem is is that it just had the pools have just not had a rest. So we're, we're very blessed and very fortunate and uh, to have these migrating steelhead coming up the Skeena that uh, even, even if there is people in pools below you, that doesn't matter because there's just a sheer number of fish coming up the Skeena that you can basically guarantee there's going to be how many of those fish that haven't seen anything. So, so, so um, it's more, more not about the necessarily the color or style of the fly it's more about getting in front of the right fish right that's it yeah it really is and of course i always say if they're not there you can't catch them you know yeah, um, yeah. and so that of course uh, we did face that i mean i'm going to be a realist uh, we had that situation this year on the on the skeena drainage where uh, there was definitely i would say we had inclement weather yes there was fish but the run was definitely uh, I felt that was impacted, and I would—I hate to point fingers, but it's because uh, I always say if you point a finger in a room, there's always one pointing back at you. So, um, but uh, but I think that uh, the commercial, the sockeye uh, commercial fishery, and the inland commercial harvest that takes place with the indigenous now is really having a, a major effect uh, on the summer run steelhead. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, how do you you know you you. Where do you look in the river? Where are those steelhead holding? What do you look for? 
and then how do you prepare to get in front of that fish? On the main stem skeena, you know, because the river's so big, a lot of people uh, get very intimidated by it and don't really know where to go. Um, what you want to do is it's much like you just need to break the river down and don't look at it as so big. Just look for the one thing about the skeena that can kind of throw people off is there are side channels and splits and, and it, it breaks up and comes back together. And um, I always try to get uh, kind of on an inside bend or an inside corner or and I always try to kind of focus on uh, you don't want to get off, you don't want to be on a section of the skeena where there's like a whole bunch of braids. I mean, some of those braids will actually surprise you and they will, you will catch fish on them uh, depending on some, in some cases it plays more a factor as to where, say, one of their spawning tributaries might be. So if, uh, if you have a significant spawning tributary that's on, happens to be on that side of the river and you're on a braid and that tributary is draining down that side, then you may find that that works for you. But if you're just out on the main stem skeena and you're looking for migratory fish, and remember, that's key, migratory. They are still migrating. These fish are not holding fish. They're not sitting in a pool. They're not with their friends. They're moving, and they never stop moving, which is migrating. They're constantly moving, which is amazing to watch them. And when we get water conditions and you see them, they never break stride. They're always moving at a steady pace, and you'll actually see them swim right past you. It's unbelievable. So when you're reading the water, it's a lot of the water that you're reading is going to be one inside bends. Uh, you're going to try to you, obviously you want a water depth of no more than say no less obviously than say a foot, and no more. You know, I mean, if the water is say eight feet deep, that's getting that's getting a little out of my range. There, I don't really like. I wouldn't really be throwing into that on the skeena so much. I'd be kind of wanting that anywhere from, say, three to, say, six feet of water. That's it. That's kind of my limit. And and then I always tell my clients, they always worry that, are, am I deep enough? Am I deep enough? Am I fishing deep enough? Right. Um, you basically, if you're in six feet of water, I always tell my clients, and the water's got relatively, say, two and a half to three feet of viz, I tell my guys, I say, look, guys, you don't need to be on the bottom. These fish are not suckers. They don't have lips on the bottoms of their faces. They have their trout. And so if there's six feet of water and your fly is in the water two and a half feet or even a foot below the surface, you're in the strike zone for an aggressive steelhead. And I always say to the guys, remember, they do take dries. So, you, you know, that's the thing that you have to always kind of remember. You don't want to overweight your tip and have your fly dragging on the bottom you, one, it's not fun to fish that way. Two, you're going to lose lots of flies. Three, you're, you know, you're going to break off, and it just becomes frustrating. And most importantly, you're not actually fishing. You're, you're now, you've taken yourself, you've just cut your odds down to less than probably, you, you might be lucky if you have 10% chance of catching a steelhead if you're just dragging on the bottom. So keep your fly elevated, and don't fish in much more than, say, six feet of water. And um, always look for water that's uh, no faster than, say, a fast walk. That's it. It's that just that nice speed. It's not ripping fast. Um, it's not to say that I've never caught steelhead in faster water. Shoot, I've caught steelhead in a back eddy. But I'm saying, um, you know, that typically higher percentage, look for that water that's just kind of like a fast walk. So um, 
and to talk about another fellow that was a legend was a fellow by the name of Michael Fong, Michael and Christine Fong, and it was Michael Fong when I was a young guide in the Skeena region uh, that um, that kind of said that sa those same words, I look for water that's like a fast walk. So um, that's where that came from. <laughs> yeah. Now you've had and you've guided uh, clients to some large uh, steelhead. Um, is that is catching a large steelhead just luck of the draw, or is there it, is there a strategy to it? It's a numbers game. I mean, honestly, I had this conversation with another guide even just the other evening on uh, Instagram, and it was quite funny. And right away he starts talking about the Sustat, and that's the only place you can catch a 30-pound fish. And I kind of just laughed, I, you know, and I'm not trying to be arrogant and uh, or not, absolutely not, but... You know, there's a lot of people that would go and say, oh, no, the Kispiox, it has a certain genetics. It's got the strain. There's there's more 30 or potentially 40-pound steelhead in the Kispiox. I just, I would beg to differ. I mean, I've fished the Kispiox. I think the largest steelhead I've caught on the Kispiox is 12 pounds. I mean, and I've fished it not um, avidly, but I've definitely put some time in there. Um, I would just say that these Steelhead, it's just, it's, there's a lot of luck of the draw. I mean, I've had many steelhead on that absolutely kicked my butt on the Skeena. I never even seen them. Maybe I saw them jump, tail walk, and they were gone, and I would have put them maybe in the 30, 34-pound class, but I didn't get to catch that fish. I mean, and it's a fish that's forever ingrained in my brain. 30-pound um, uh, steelhead, 34-pound steelhead on the Skeena. Uh, or sorry, on the Kitimat, 30-pound uh, steelhead on the main stem Skeena, 30-pound steelhead on the Copper River. But if I was, and then one of the largest steelhead, I have to tell you the story, the largest steelhead i ever seen, and I actually had three other witnesses with me, and they're very good people, they're very honest people, was <laughs> actually not anywhere near the Skeena. It was in the Nass River at, um, where the Mesiaden meets the Nass River. It's another tributary that comes into the Nass, and it was years ago. And honestly, I would say that this steelhead had to be like 40 pounds. It looked like a, it was like a large Chinook salmon. And the only reason that I know without a doubt it was a steelhead, because it had four or five female beautiful chrome hens sitting with it. And, and what was really crazy about it as well, of course, is it was sitting in a back eddy, and they were actually, so the water was swirling around, and they were actually facing what we would say the wrong direction because the tributary that was coming in, the way it was meeting the NAS created this back eddy and they were actually facing into that and the water was so clear and then the NAS is very muddy and they were sitting in the clean water seam on the inside and we were all dumbfounded by the size of this fish. I've never seen a steelhead like that again, ever. Like it was just, it was like, uh, it would be like seeing a Sasquatch. So, um, I had actually a fellow by the name of Lance Bowen. He's a uh, leather sculptor artist that does uh, leather uh, artwork. He's quite a famous character for doing artwork. And um, anyways, he was there. I had another photographer with me, and I had another fellow by the name of Eric Wiseman. And, uh, yeah, they were all there. They all seen the fish. It's not a fish story, mm. and it was definitely <laughs> the largest one i ever seen. So, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So, okay, the largest one I never hooked either, and I didn't catch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, question on the internet and uh, from uh, Tre Goings, and also a question from Mark Weiss in Chicago. 
Um, they want to know the costs. You know, if you come from the U.S. up there, what is the cost uh, for an out-of-country license, and what's it cost uh, for a trip up there? You know, uh, so you're 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 basically most guys come if they're coming up here. Uh, the maximum most people, you know, some stay longer, but is uh, like an eight-night, seven-day. That'll run you right around it's fifty-five hundred dollars U.S. and that includes all your lodging, meals, guide, meet, uh, transports to and from the airport. So you're, you're our responsibility, and we take care of you from the time you hit the tarmac in Terrace, uh, and you'll fly out of Vancouver, British Columbia, into Terrace, and um, we're only about a 15-minute drive from the airport, so it's not a long distance. And um, your fishing license with all your uh, conservation surcharge stamps and whatnot will run you right around $120 Canadian. For the seven days? Yeah. Or a yeah, day? Okay. Nope, that's for the entire time you're here, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, good, good. And last question. Uh, when you talk, uh, everything you've talked about uh, tonight and your experience, what do you think makes the Skeena so special to you? Well, you know, as I said, I started my kind of, I wouldn't say career, I certainly didn't, wasn't, but my passion in the seed was planted on Vancouver Island and and God knows we everyone's heard of Rudder Keg Brown and, and what Vancouver Island was back in its day. And and so what I got to see as a young boy and having that uh, and living in such a, a time still uh, and having been there and then uh, having been able to come up to uh, northern BC and it was almost like going back in time. I mean, um, 28 years ago, Terrace was kind of a sleepy little community there was no Walmart. There were no big box stores. It's really kind of amazing how it has changed in a short period of time. And uh, fisheries, the fishery here, for one thing, is we still have wild habitat. Our habitat is no dams, um, you know. So, so that's really the attraction for me. I mean, unfortunately, and I don't like to talk about these things because it's just it's hard, but. Uh, the Thompson River, you know, we've loved it to death. You know, um, that's one of Pierce Clegg's uh, favorite sayings, by the way, is we love it to death. And uh, yeah. and that is what we've done. I mean, from, from uh, you know, so the reason I'm here is because because of nature is still here. You're still surrounded and devoured by nature and pristine mountains and pristine rivers and snow-capped mountains and, and, and just so much, so many different rivers and opportunities to, to kind of dive into and just immerse yourself in. So um, as a guide uh, and as a fisherman, as an angler, I think every angler can kind of uh, relate to this is what I call it corneritis. So, you know, when you're going down a steelhead river and let's say you're on foot and you, uh, you're fishing a pool, but you're kind of already looking down around the bend thinking, man, that sure looks good down there, you know. Yeah. And so what's kept me in the Skeena region and attracted me to the Skeena region was I've never ran out of rivers to fish, and I've I've always got corneritis. It's just uh, it just keeps me intrigued and keeps me energized. And I and because every river has a different bend and a different uh, feel and a different uh, nuance to it, um, and I just love showing the clients. I love seeing the looks on people's faces when I take them on the rivers that we have here and how magnificent, just beautiful and magnificent they are. And and uh, you know, I 
yeah, I just can't really say enough about the area. It's, it's truly spectacular, yeah. and yeah. I really hope it's here for a long time for a lot of people to see and experience because it's really yeah. supernatural, to be honest with you. Very good, very good. Well, we're out of time, um, Gil, but um, hang with me for a few more minutes here. Uh, we're going to give away some prizes and so forth, so uh, stick with me and uh, we'll do that. We're going to be giving away a one-year membership to the Fly Fishers International, a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, and we'll also be giving away a book uh, from the list of books that I have from Stackpole. Uh, so if the winner of that, uh, they'll be able to browse this list and pick something out. So let's get to it in just a second. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization and uh, that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, nature and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreat, visit fishon.org. That's fishon.org. Or call 616-855-4017. 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone, uh, before you leave our website tonight, take a minute and leave your feedback about the show can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that said, what did you think of the show? Just uh, click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to uh, give away our prizes. The winners for our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for the show, tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you have a chance at winning one of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. Uh, so the first thing we're giving away tonight is a membership to the Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Uh, great, great uh, organization to support, heavily into conservation, and uh, uh, you won't regret uh, joining up with them. So uh, our, let me fire up my database, and looks like our first uh, winner is Jeff. Um, Ostrom, Jeff Ostrom in Washington. So just a little bit south of you there, Gil. Uh, so congratulations, Jeff, and um, probably steelheading in Washington as well. So uh, congrats on that uh, membership. And then we're going to give away a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. They're a great publisher of all kinds of fly fishing books and periodicals, so check them out. And our winner there is Daniel Smolinski, Daniel Smolinski, also from Washington. So a bunch of people from Washington listening in tonight. Uh, so congratulations to both you gentlemen, and I uh, hope you enjoy your, your prizes. And now we'll give away uh, a book uh, courtesy of Stackpole Books, stackpolebooks.com. And um, like I said, if you're a winner of this, then we'll send you a list of books to choose from, and you can take your pick. Um, still got... Uh, Okay, <laughs> I just saw uh, Jeff Ostrom just said yay on my cue here, so he knows that he won already. <laughs> Good. Um, so the question is, and you, you answer this on our homepage in the same place that you could ask questions during the show, 
just put in your answer, your name, and your location there. And the question is, what is the date that uh, Gil puts on his calendar uh, that he considers the start of the summer steelhead run? What is the date he puts on his calendar? Okay, we might have a winner right off the bat. First one in here. Uh, he's got July 15th. Is that it? Correct. Gil? That's it. Okay, that so is it. Joseph, Joseph uh, Kinney, Eagle, Idaho. Joseph Kinney in Eagle, Idaho. So it sounds like uh, you might be a new listener. I haven't seen your name before, Joseph, so congrats. You were quick on that. And, uh, <laughs> Joseph, what you need to do is um, you need to send me your uh, – you can use the same text box you were just in. You send me your address, your mailing address that you want the book sent to. I've got your name. I've got your email address. Send me your address, and we'll be good to go, and we'll get that out um, to you. So uh, thanks for paying attention, and um, glad you were able to win. Gil, um, I, I really appreciate you being on the show with us. Um, it was a, a great time and uh, learned lots about that river. It sounds like a place i got to go. It's another one on the bucket list. <laughs> right? but Thank thanks you, so Roger. Much for um, for sharing all your knowledge and experience with us. I'd just like to thank, uh, one thing uh, I, I wanted to make sure I'd done, uh, one, I want to thank you for having me on the show. Two, I think it's really important that I recognize my mentors and, and the people that, that mentored me, and uh, I have so many of them. I listed off uh, uh, Larry Dahlberg and Raleigh Working, and uh, there's just so many that I could go on. Jim Teeny all the different people that I idolized as a young man and, and coming up, uh, Noel Giger, uh, Pierce Clegg, um, this, there's just so many. I could go on and on, and I know you probably don't have time, but I just want to make sure that people understand that it's important that, uh, that I recognize the mentors that I've had and uh, what uh, helped also get me to where I am today. So, Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure they appreciate the recognition, so thank you for that. Yep. Uh, hopefully... You all have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link at the top menu. It says podcast archive. You'll find all our past shows up there, over 320-some, 25 shows. Um, and you can search by a keyword there or a phrase like trout or tarpon or bull trout or whatever you want in the Skeena River, and uh, that will be showing up there shortly. So go ahead and explore. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by all that you'll discover in that archive. Our next broadcast will be February 3rd, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I will interview Charlie Leslie. And our topic for the show will be fly fishing Southern Belize. Charlie is actually a good friend of mine and my guide down there, so I'm kind of partial to him. Uh, but he started guiding in Belize when he was 19 years old. He learned to fly fish from Lefty Cray. And over the past 50 years, he's become a master of casting and fly presentation to permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook. Uh, so join us to learn Charlie's approach to fishing, which is based on the tides, weather, migratory patterns, and other conditions that will ensure that you have the best opportunity to land a fish of a lifetime. So join us for that. Hope to see you on that show. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Whoops.